0: Monday, June 25th. Welcome to Market Folklore. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today are from Motley Fool Stock Advisor Jason Moser and from Motley Fool Inside Value Joe Mager. Happy Monday, guys. Happy Monday. Happy new week to everybody. Uh, the the breaking news from CNBC is that the Supreme Court will not be um, issuing a ruling today on healthcare. So, everyone just, you know.
1: Was that that collective exhale I just heard? Yeah, that, 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 that oh, okay. was the that big
0: exhale, been- uh, which is good because we weren't planning <laughs> to talk about healthcare. Uh, we're going to talk about a, uh, a looming beverage deal. We are going to dig into the full mailbag. <laughs> we are going to start with Disney. Uh, Disney Pixar's latest movie, Brave, took in nearly $67 million at the box office this weekend. Number one at the box office, Jason. It is Pixar's 13th film, and it is the 13th time it has opened number one uh, at the box office. It's, uh, it's a pretty staggering t- uh, track record for this studio.
1: It is, and I feel pretty badly about not taking my girls to go see the movie this
2: weekend. You're a terrible father. <laughs> <huh>? I was
1: <laughs> I'm kind of that guy that's gonna let the they'll let the first week sort of pass by and let every kinda of let the herd kind of thin out and we'll go probably this coming weekend. Uh but yeah, I mean this it's not surprising. I mean, we've been seeing the previews for this uh in seeing other Disney movies. I mean, I remember seeing Winnie the Pooh a, a little while back and they had the previews for this and ever since then, I mean it's been like a year yeah. of anticipation and so uh, it's not surprising to see them do this. I mean, Pixar, Disney—a wonderful relationship—and uh, they just continue to to put out great stuff.
0: Now, I know that uh, Disney doesn't really break things out, you know, much in the way that we've talked about companies like Amazon. Like Amazon doesn't break out Kindle numbers in the right. way that uh, investors would like. Um, Disney doesn't break out Pixar numbers, um, but we do know that obviously it's contributing to what it's doing for studio, uh, what it's doing for merchandising.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could get probably pretty granular and go through and, and collectively just add up all of the different releases. Which ones are Pixar versus back which ones are not? Back out the so two hundred
0: fifty like, million for John Carter. And, and also, remember, don't
1: don't count the Avengers there because that's not <laughs> Pixar. I don't believe, but. Um, it is it is amazing to see what the studio entertainment uh, segment is responsible for. It's responsible for about fifteen percent of all revenues, um, along with the consumer product segment, which is another ten percent. So that those two segments alone make up about a quarter of the revenues. And operating wise, uh, they make up about seventeen percent of operating income. So they they're significant. And uh you know that they're going to continue to pay a lot of attention because that's their real that's one of their big money makers is getting people into those theaters and they do such a great job not only of of leading people up to the event getting the anticipation out there but we were talking about this earlier they do such a great job of making you feel the urgency of getting out there to go see it like right now yep. sleeping beauty is out but only for a limited time but yeah. you know it's, it's 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 a story as old as time itself
0: so Joe what do you think
2: Well Disney does about ten billion a quarter in revenue. So, you know, sixty-seven million on a weekend release, you need to keep a little perspective on size, but that kind of understates the value of a new franchise to Disney. So for example, you're probably going to see some sort of sequel off this now, right? So they could roll out three movies on this. And they're going to be selling a lot of merchandise related Brave. They already are. And <laughs> and these <laughs> movies are going to be on the Disney Channel and they're going to be licensed out on ABC and different networks over time. So, you know, there'll be video games going, you know, and so forth. There'll be a, an amusement park ride at Disney. And so what I'm getting at is creating this content up front doesn't seem all that valuable, but the lifetime value of a new franchise, especially, you know, a female character. Disney doesn't have very many strong female characters. they got a lot of princesses. Yeah, They're all beautiful, <laughs> but none of them are, you know, real role models in the traditional sense. And this is a nice yeah. departure for them where they can really kind of milk this character for, you know,
0: potentially decades. Ariel and Belle and all those princesses, they're great. They don't wield the bow and arrow quite the way Merida does. In well, this Belle film. was a little feisty. Yeah, she was a little feisty. But uh, I, I did uh, see the movie this weekend. Um, uh, yeah. Not surprisingly, my daughters loved it. Um, one of the things I was struck by was the number of adults in the theater who did not have children with them. So just looking down the row, <laughs> like you know, I'm uh, not sure whether to be encouraged yeah. or no, no, actually but, scared by that. <laughs> but, but but I mean I think it speaks to the point of of you know, obviously, you know, to Joe's point, these are people who are not necessarily going to be getting the brave video game, but in terms of creating a great story, which is what Pixar is so good at doing, you're not gonna see twenty something couples on a double date going to see Madagascar three. You know, as entertaining yeah. as that movie is for kids. It's just not the same thing. Whereas, in the, you know, there was a these you know these two couples down my row, clearly on a double date, going to see Brave. Yeah, well, we we
2: blew off Brave this weekend. My wife and I to watch Elena instead, which is a Russian slow paced family drama and subtitles.
0: You chose poorly.
2: I didn't. Sounds like I didn't make this is. choice.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that, that, there we go. Um I want to go back to sort of Disney and its its various divisions because it seems like if you're Bob Iger the CEO you're not losing a wink of sleep over Pixar. You're just looking at that division and saying that's fine. I just got to make sure they they have what they need to keep doing their job and doing it well and I'm not worried about them. What's at the other end of the spectrum within Disney, Jason? What what is the what is the division within Disney that is if if not failing? Um, is certainly the anti Pixar.
1: So, the runt of the litter is interactive media. And interactive media is this segment that more or less accounts for the games that, that Disney puts out there, whether they're console games, online games, social gaming, online, whatever it may be. They take, you know, Joe mentioned how, like, the lifespan of, of any of these stories that this character can live on for, for so many generations. And, and part of what they do is they take these characters and develop sort of interactive media content around them. And so, the interactive media uh, segment of the business is, is the runt of the litter. It's it's not really one that generates all that much money, and I believe from an operational perspective, it actually loses money. Uh, but it's it's sort of given the age that we live in, it's it's almost a, a requisite that they have it uh, because we're wired in in everything that we do. Uh, they don't seem to really put a whole lot behind it. They do it, it seems like because they kind of have to. Yeah. Uh, but but that's what that segment is. I don't foresee them really. Changing their minds and trying to put everything they have behind that one segment, it's more or less just a byproduct of the of the studio segment and, and the consumer goods segment.
0: Joe, are there other businesses that have their own Pixar? They, you know, large businesses that have many divisions, and they've got their own sort of absolute star division that they just think, you know, we're not worried about this one at all.
2: Yeah, well, you look at eBay, and they own PayPal. And PayPal is about 40% of revenue at eBay, growing at 30% a year. Pretty impressive numbers. Probably going to see that one spun off. But PayPal is still kind of young and formative. I think a really good comp might be Frito-Lay at PepsiCo, which is such a masterful business with huge market share, great brands, great distribution. They, you know, firing on all cylinders. But PepsiCo is known for its you know, namesake brand, Pepsi, right. which isn't doing very well, and just getting its butt handed to it by Coca-Cola. <laughs> so, I think that's a pretty
0: nice little comp. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Anheuser-Busch InBev is close to taking control of Grupo Modelo S.A.B., the company that makes Corona Extra. Uh, the deal could be valued at more than $12 billion, And Joe Maker, as of this taping, Shares of anheuser Bush are ahead of the market so far today. Is that a sign that shareholders really like this deal? Yeah, stocks
2: usually go down. Stocks of acquiring companies usually go down when they announce a big deal. So when they go up, that's usually a sign that the market absolutely loves a deal and that it's going to create a lot of value. In this case, they kind of had a contentious relationship, and this will just be one less problem for management to deal with. But as we've talked about on the show, the name of the game with. You know, beverages is distribution and brands, and by bringing this in-house, they'll have more control, they'll be able to bring out more value, uh, get the product, Modelo in front of more people, spread it out across the world, and ABN Bev's management team is very well known for being aggressive. And smart, so they'll lever up, go out and buy a, a new brand, pump it out through distribution, cut costs, but they also do a nice job of raising brands too. Uh, Stella Artois is a good example, with you know, not in every country it has a great reputation, but they've managed to position this beer that, outs, you know, in Europe for example, isn't all that critically acclaimed, but Stella in the U.S. is positioned as a super premium beer, and they've done a masterful job of that. So, you know, if they're able to continue that mojo with a little more control of Corona, for example, which they'll have with this. You know, I think this could be a really good deal for them. Jason, what do you think?
1: Yeah, this is a neat story. If anyone out there is interested in sort of the backstory to all this, I recommend a book called Dethroning the King, which talks about the takeover of Anheuser-Busch uh, by InBev. And in that story is uh, some of this backstory here with the uh, the whole uh, acquisition that we're talking about today here. But I do think that, uh, you know, in looking at the perspective of beer versus spirits, we've seen this over the past few years. Spirits are starting to gain share on mm-hmm. beer, and beer holds still a significant amount of the market um, at, at close to fifty percent. But but over the past few years, we've seen spirits gaining share, and so I think this is interesting uh, timing as far as getting this deal done because, like Joe said, it, it allows them to utilize their scale, ring out more efficiencies, um, and and get more beer uh, out to more hands. Corona, I think, is the number one selling import of beer in the United States, for example. So it's going to give them one more uh, one more power, powerful uh, name in that portfolio and it, it maybe help them sort of stave off some of that gain in, in uh, market share that
2: spirits are, are posing right now it's a terrible beer by the way beer that you've got to <laughs> shove a lime in to make yeah. drinkable. I was say, I'm not a beer I was drinker. surprised
1: to read that statistic actually I mean, to me it's just oh, it's not huge. really it's it's huge. decent I guess but I can think of many other ones that I like more.
0: Um, we'll get to your beer recommendation in a moment. Okay. But I, I, I want to sort of Look, sort of at beverages writ large, because it seems like there's almost a like a business model in place for any new beverage company, whether it's a startup beer company, a microbrew. We, you know, we have a, a relatively new one here in Alexandria, Port City yep. Brewing Company, um, to you know, soft drinks and and uh, sort of non-alcoholic beverages. It almost seems like if you want to succeed. You're only going to succeed so much unless you ultimately sell out to someone larger like is that am I wrong about that Joe or it really seems like let's get acquired is the business model for anyone going into the yeah. beverage business unless you're comfortable sort of capping your business at a certain level like if you know if port city you know or or maybe honest tea is a better yeah. example, we had you know Seth Goldman in here, and you know they they start out they roll out their tea business, and Coca-Cola takes a little share of it, and then ultimately Coca-Cola becomes the majority owner.
2: Yeah, and there are a lot of microbrewers like that out there who I've talked to. You know, They don't really care about becoming the next bud. They just want to make great product and make enough money to get by doing it. But that's not how most people run their businesses. And there are real big barriers to entry in this industry where fixed costs are really high. The equipment's expensive. you got to buy a lot of you know materials up front, raw materials, and then distribution is again, you know we said the name of the game, right like it's tough to actually get out there and get in front of stores you don't have a sales force, you don't have trucks it's a lot more difficult than you'd think to get you know your product out in markets and actually you know, reach the consumer. So what ends up happening is these guys when they do occasionally beverage makers somehow strike through, they connect with a consumer, what you'll see them do is grow as quickly as they can and then try and sell to someone like a bud and you know, or a Coca-Cola, and it's a natural partnership because those guys have bigger reach distribution, but they're better marketers and they can make more of your brand. But, you know, another model that we're kind of seeing some is, especially in the craft brew side, is like partnerships, uh, where like a Molson Coors or an ABN might take a minority stake in your brewer, give you better distribution, still give you, you know, a sense of control, kind of like like Unilever and Ben & Jerry's kind of deal, but with less control involved.
0: Do you have a, uh, a summer beer recommendation?
2: Hmm. Oh. Does
1: it have to be imported or no? It could it can be, be anything. I mean, I'm again,
0: I'm not a beer drinker, but I know that there are some people who, whatever their beer of choice is, when it's summertime, it's like, oh well, it's summertime, and now here's my well, summer I, beer.
2: I'll tell you, I'm on a gin and tonic kick right now. Uh, <laughs> Hendricks and tonic with a cucumber in there is the way to go. I, okay, yeah. good to know. I'm a total
1: sucker for Samuel Adams Boston Lager. To me that's just a very basic, delicious beer. It's always a winner. If you want to go imported, and I don't think many people out there see this or know that it exists even really because it's not really on the shelves very often. But Heineken Dark is just a phenomenal dark beer. It's it just I, I think that it it takes a little bit of that bitter flavor that most people are used to in dark beers and, and just really mellows it out.
0: You can always drop stuff. us an email. Radio at fool.com is the way to get a hold of us. Uh, email from David Petal in Camberley, England. I work in an office all day with one other guy and have done this for 13 years now. When I listen to you guys via podcast while walking the dog, it's nice to feel part of a group and hear some different voices. That's, it's a nice thought. And I, yeah. I, I don't think he means that as a diss against the other guy. Although, you know, We've heard a few who if emails, he listens to this show is probably feeling a little snuck right now. <laughs> We've got a number
1: of emails of people who listen to us when they walk their dogs.
0: I like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I like to think that David Pettle would not be, like, if, if working with this other guy was that awful. <laughs> I, hopefully he wouldn't be doing it for 13 hopefully. years. Hopefully. Uh, from Rick Sterk, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, in, uh, he writes to us from Afghanistan. I'm a U.S. contractor working with the U.S. Army. I listen to your podcast every day, and I think I would be your 101st listener. Again, like people. Guys, I was pushing for those. I I just like that people are giving themselves numbers. Uh, Your podcast last Thursday was great, and the rescue pet stories made me want to relay the following. We were driving on the perimeter road around Bagram Air Base when we spotted a tortoise that was along the side of the road and could not get through the fence. The road is heavily traveled by trucks and MRAPs. And so the tortoise's demise was imminent. My buddy stopped the pickup and I jumped out and grabbed the tortoise before it could be killed. We then drove to the safest place we could think of and released the tortoise in an old Russian minefield. I know that sounds counterintuitive. However, I guarantee no vehicle is going to drive in the minefield. No one will go in after it. And the risk of the tortoise actually tripping one is far more remote than getting squashed by an MRAP. And for the record, it was female. Um, And he attached a a photo of of the tortoise, which he said was uh, last seen heading east at about two miles an hour. Well, hats
2: (laughs) off to Rick for working in a place where the safest place to let a turtle go is a minefield. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And uh, again, uh, I have to uh, just say that uh, he's sort of the anti-Brian Hinman. You know, here's a guy, you know, in Afghanistan. TMF kidnapper. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, Brian Hinman's like, "Ah, I think it'd be fun to go down to the Galapagos and just pick me up one of them giant tortoises. (laughs) Jason Moser, Joe Mager, guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.